What a bleak look at Vietnam in the 1950s. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of February's book The Quiet American by Graham Greene, published in 1955. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month, the 25th of February. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you've had thoughts that you want to express about the book that I've missed or there's something you agree or really disagree with. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to halfway, that's part two, chapter four for me on page 99. So the narrator of the book is waiting for his friend Pyle we're in Saigon. He bumps into Fuong, who is Pyle's lover. They smoke opium together, and he asks her, is he still in love with you? The fact that he knows Fuong so well makes me think that she was a former lover, and he says, thank him for nothing. He wants to sleep with her, but she shakes her head, and we learn that Pyle will marry Fuong and no doubt give her security. A Vietnamese police officer knocks at the door and asks them to come to the police station. And then we meet the French chief inspector Vigo. He lets us know that the narrator is called Fowler. And he's been in a relationship with Fuong for two years. And that Fuong has been with Paul for a month. Vigo asks Fowler for a description of Paul. And he says, age 32, employed in the Economic Aid Mission, Nationality American. He's a good chap in his way, serious, not one of those noisy people at the Continental, a quiet American. I summed him precisely up as I might have said, a blue lizard, a white elephant. I wonder if this American is so quiet, he won't actually make an appearance in person in this book. On the very next page, we learn that Pyle is dead. When asked how Fowler intuited he was dead, Fowler says... Quote, not guilty. I told myself that it was true. Didn't Paul always go his own way? I looked for any feeling in myself, even resentment at a policeman's suspicion, but I could find none. No one but Paul was responsible. Aren't we all better dead? The opium reasoned with me, but I looked cautiously at Fuong, for it was hard on her. She must have loved him in her way. Hadn't she been fond of me? Hadn't she left me for Pyle? She had attached herself to youth and hope and seriousness, and now they had failed her more than age and despair. So he does feel that he could possibly be responsible. No one but Pyle was responsible. Feels like he's protesting too much and overdoing the point. We shall see, I guess. Fowler recounts his movements that evening. Pyle was found under Dachau Bridge, drowned in mud. Fowler states neither he or Fuong are motivated to kill Pyle. Fowler reveals that Pyle was responsible for 50 deaths. So he's some kind of American agent. When they return to his apartment, it's been searched. He reiterates to Fuong that he has been assassinated, but she doesn't seem so fussed. He smokes some opium with her and thinks, quote, am I the only one who really cared for Pyle? And we go back to find out more history of when Fowler met Pyle. Fowler is dismissive of a journalist's experience of the Indochina War. Quote, 
Periodically, after an engagement had been tidily finished and the casualties removed from the scene, they would be summoned to Hanoi, nearly four hours' flight away, addressed by the commander-in-chief, lodged for one night in a press camp, where they boasted that the barman was the best in Indochina. Flown over the late battlefield at a height of 3,000 feet, the limit of a heavy machine gun's range, and then delivered safely and noisily back like a school treat to the Continental Hotel in Saigon. Pyle admires a book called The Advance of Red China by York. And was he assassinated by the communists? He tries to explain the political system in Vietnam. There's a fight with communists and French. York writes that a third force is needed in the East. I assume an American force. Fowler describes Vietnam... Quote, the gold of the rice fields under a flat late sun, the fishers' fragile cranes hovering over the fields like mosquitoes, the cups of tea on an old Abbott's platform with his bed and his commercial calendars, his buckets and broken cups and the junk of a lifetime washed up around his chair, the mollusk hats of the girls repairing the road where a mine had burst, the gold and the young green and the bright dresses of the south, and in the north the deep browns and the black clothes and the circle of enemy mountains and the drone of plains. The next day, they collect Fong's things from Pyle's apartment. Vigo, the police chief, is there and asks Fowler the possible causes of Pyle's death, and Fowler lists them. The police chief says, quote, could it be a simple case of jealousy? And Fowler responds with, quote, or perhaps by the French surete, I continued, because they didn't like his contacts. Are you really looking for the people who killed him? Fong did choose Pyle, so it could be jealousy. Or is he being framed by the police? Fowler's view is, you can rule me out. Quote, you can rule me out, I said. I'm not involved, not involved, I repeated. It had been an article of my creed. The human condition being what it was. Let them fight, let them love, let them murder. I would not be involved. My fellow journalists called themselves correspondents. I preferred the title of reporter. I wrote what I saw. I took no action. Even opinion is a kind of an action. Vigo's report on Pyle says he was killed by the communists. Quote, My report's all tied up. He was murdered by the communists, perhaps the beginning of the campaign against American aid. But Vigo suspects another cause. The American economic attaché pops by to say that Pyle had, quote, special duties. And Fowler says, oh yes, we all guessed that. And the attaché says, he didn't talk, did he? Oh no, says Fowler. And Vigo's phrase came back to him. He was a very quiet American. So he's been doing some spying, perhaps. Fowler says he was killed because he was so innocent. We then learn how Pyle met Fuong in a hotel. Pyle invites him and Fuong over. The economic attaché, Joe, is there. Another correspondent, Bill Granger, says that Viet Minh burned a cathedral in Hanoi to the north. They go to a club, Fowler, Pyle and Fuong, and he feels compelled to look after Pyle. Quote, that was my first instinct, to protect him. It never occurred to me that there was greater need to protect myself. Innocence always calls mutely for protection when we would be so much wiser to guard ourselves against it. Innocence is like a dumb leper who has lost his bell, wandering the world, meaning no harm. He's appalled by the club and Fowler removes him and they go to Fuang at a restaurant. Fuang is very young when Fowler meets her. Quote, watched by an elder sister determined for a good European marriage. She asks about Paul and he says, quote, he belongs to the American economic mission, you know, the kind of thing, electrical sewing machines for starving seamstresses. Are there any? I don't know. But they don't use sewing machines. There wouldn't be any electricity where they live. She was a very literal woman. 
We learn that Fuong doesn't have parents and Fowler says he's afraid of losing happiness. Fowler visits what was once a beautiful place called Fat Diem and it's been completely destroyed. Quote, rubble and broken glass and the smell of burnt paint and plaster, the long street empty as far as the sight could reach. It reminded me of a London thoroughfare in the early morning after an all clear. One expected to see a placard, unexploded bomb. And this work was only written 10 years after World War II ended. The Viet Minh soldiers infiltrated the town during the church possession and made their attack. Fowler comes across European troops and joins them for a reconnaissance mission. He witnesses horrible scenes, piles of bodies in a canal, and he thinks how death would be a relief for him. There are some other horrific details. A mother and a child are found dead. Quote, We rose and began our journey back, punting again around the shoal of bodies, filing past the church. We hadn't gone very far, and yet it seemed a long enough journey to have made with the killing of those two as the only result. Shoal of bodies. Ugh, isn't that horrible? And when they set up camp, he feels like an actor or a disembodied person. Quote, The wind was up again, prowling for an entry. The canvas curtain sagged. I was reminded of Polonius stabbed behind the arras, and the candle wavered. The shadows were theatrical. We might have been a company of barnstormers. Now, barnstormers are an amateur dramatic group performing in barns. As he tries to sleep, he thinks, quote... I wondered, but oddly, without jealousy, whether Fuong was at the flat. The possession of a body tonight seemed a very small thing. Perhaps that day I had seen too many bodies which belonged to no one, not even to themselves. We were all expendable. Pyle appears and joins him, and the reason he made the hazardous journey is to tell Fowler that he loves Fuong. So we learn Fowler is called Thomas, or Tom Fowler. Pyle wants to marry Fuong, and he has come to ask Pyle's permission. Fowler envies Pyle's youth and we learn Fowler is married. Pyle is called Alden, Alden Pyle. Fowler is very upset by the fact that he's asked Fowler to marry. And then we have this pathetic fallacy. Quote, When the candle was out, I could just see the outline of his crew cut against the light of the flames outside. Good night, Thomas. Sleep well. And immediately at those words, like a bad comedy, cue the mortars opened up, whirring, shrieking, exploding. And then we have more of Pyle's naivety. Quote, Thomas, I want you to know what I think of the way you've taken all this. I think you've been swell, swell. There's no other word for it. Fowler is so jealous. He says Fuong only wants sex from a man, not children. And that her sister has told Fuong Pyle has more money and is therefore a better catch. He muses that, quote, waking that morning months later with Fuong beside me, I thought, and did you understand her either? Could you have anticipated this situation? Fuong so happily asleep beside me and you dead. Time has its revenges, but revenges seem so often sour. Wouldn't we all do better not trying to understand, accepting the fact that no human being will ever understand another, not a wife, a husband, a lover, a mistress, nor a parent, a child? Perhaps that's why men have invented God, a being capable of understanding. Perhaps if I wanted to be understood or to understand, I would bamboozle myself into belief. But I am a reporter. God exists only for leader writers. So at this point in the novel, I am getting hints of the island flowing to the book. Pyle is displacing Fowler's love and he feels threatened by his youth, just as Samuel feels like he's about to be displaced by the man if you did read that novel. 
Continuing the narrative, Pyle writes Fowler a letter saying how he doesn't feel, quote, mean anymore. And I'm thinking he is so naive. There's a French colonel that admits that the Americans are not helping them with supplies. Fowler then goes to a bar in Hanoi and a telegram is sent to him, promoting him back to England. And we go into part two. Fowler muses that the conversation about Pyle loving Fong could have been some kind of cover story because it is an open secret that he works on a secret mission for the Americans. Fuong doesn't even think Pyle much likes her. He clearly doesn't want to be promoted to this job in England, which will separate him from Fuong. Anyway, Pyle comes by looking for Fuong. Quote, I got your note, I said. I suppose I ought to knock you down. Of course, he said, you every right, Thomas. But I boxed at college and I'm so much younger. <laughs> he constantly calls him Thomas, which infuriates Fowler. Pyle has been importing plastic for some possibly secret reason. And hopefully the rest of the novel will find out what that plastic's for. And then there follows a fantastic conversation where Fowler obviously hates Pyle, but it is veiled in polite conversation about his dog, Duke. Have a listen to this. Pyle says, quote, The first dog I ever had was called Prince. I called him after the Black Prince, you know, the fellow who... And Fowler interrupts with, Massacred all the women and children in Limoges? I don't remember that, says Pyle. And Fowler says, The history books gloss it over. Fowler goes on to say, the big black dog called Duke, having panted long enough to establish a kind of right to the air, began to poke about the room. Could you ask your dog to be still, I said. Oh, I'm sorry, Duke. Duke, sit down, Duke. Duke sat down and began noisily to lick his private parts. There we see Pyle's naivety being shown up again. And listen to this passive aggressiveness. They're chatting about dogs still, and Fowler refuses to call Pyle Alden. Pyle says, I wish he'd call me Alden, Thomas. And he says, I'd rather not. Pyle has got associations. Have you thought about it? Of course I haven't. You're the straightest guy I've ever known. When I remember how you behave, when I barged in... And he's interrupted. I remember thinking before I went to sleep how convenient it would be if there were an attack and you were killed. A hero's death for democracy. And Pyle responds with, don't laugh at me, Thomas. He shifted his long limbs uneasily. I must seem a bit dumb to you, but I know when you're kidding. And Fowler says, I'm not. Fowler wants him dead. So how does he achieve this in the novel? He's definitely one of the creepiest, scariest narrators I've read for a long time. Anyway, continuing the narrative, Fawong arrives back and Fowler acts as an interpreter for Pyle's confessions of love. And I'm thinking, this cannot go well, surely. Let's see. Well, it does end up being quite hilarious. Listen to this. Quote, he said solemnly, as though this part he had learnt by heart, that he had great love and respect for Fuong. He had felt it ever since the night he had danced with her. I was reminded a little of a butler showing a party of tourists over a great house. The great house was his heart, and of the private apartments where the family lived, we were given only a rapid and surreptitious glimpse. 
I translated for him with meticulous care. It sounded worse that way, and Fuang sat quiet with her hands in her lap as though she were listening to a movie. Has she understood that? he asked. As far as I can tell, you don't want me to add a little fire to it, do you? Oh no, he said. Just translate. I don't want you to sway her emotionally. I see. Tell her I want to marry her, I told her. What was that, she said? She asked me if you were serious. I told her you were the serious type. I suppose it is an odd situation, he said, me asking you to translate. Rather odd. And yet it seems so natural. After all, you are my best friend. Poor, naive pile again. Or are we being manipulated by the narrator to think that he is naive? By the way, have you noticed how my prediction that this would be a quiet American is now completely wrong. He's been a very active and vocal part of the narrative. If anything, Fowler has been quieter, not revealing his inner feelings vocally, just expressing them in this passive-aggressive way. However, I'm interested in knowing what Pyle's, quote, quiet secret mission is with the plastics. Anyway, continuing the narrative, Fuang rejects his proposal. And it's probably because Fowler is in the room, too, getting very agitated Quote, and this is Pyle speaking. What can you offer her, he asked with anger. A couple of hundred dollars when you leave for England, or will you pass her on with the furniture? And Fowler says, the furniture isn't mine. She's not either, Fuang. Will you marry me? What about the blood group, I said, and a health certificate? You'll need hers, surely. Maybe you ought to have mine too, and a horoscope. No, that's an Indian custom. And he ignores him and says, will you marry me? And then Fowler says, say it in French, I said. I'm damned if I'll interpret for you anymore. I got to my feet and the dog growled. It made me furious. Tell your damned duke to be quiet. This is my home, not his. Will you marry me, he repeated. I took a step towards Fuang and the dog growled again. I said to Fuang, tell him to go away and take his dog with him. Come away with me now, Pyle said. Avec moi. No, Fuang said, no. Suddenly all the anger in both of us vanished. It was a problem as simple as that. It could be solved with a word of two letters. I felt an enormous relief. Pyle stood there with his mouth a little open and an expression of bewilderment on his face. He said, she said no. This is a brilliant example of showing, not telling. They're not listening to each other. Pyle is ignoring Fowler. Communication is completely broken down here. Fowler, quote, decides to return to England and writes a letter to his wife, Helen. He says of his marriage to her, quote, To this day, I'm not certain what went wrong. I know we both tried, but I think it was my temper. I know how cruel and bad my temper can be. Now I think it's a little better. The East has done that for me. Not sweeter, but quieter. Now, I mentioned earlier that Fowler is almost quieter than the American pile. And here, Fowler is confirming my thoughts. Ultimately, he asked for a divorce in the hope that he may marry Fuang. He's not hopeful, though. His wife's very Christian. Fuang asks whether he can stay in Vietnam, and he says, quote, what will we live on? And she suggests living with him in London. She says, quote, we can see the Statue of Liberty. And Fowler says, no, Fuang, that's American too. Fowler goes to a festival of the religion Kaodism, which is a blend of religions. Quote, 
We make a cage for air with holes, I thought, and man makes a cage for his religion in much the same way, with doubts left open to the weather and creeds opening on innumerable interpretations. My wife had found her cage with holes, and sometimes I envied her. There is a conflict between sun and air. I lived too much in the sun. His wife is very religious, as I said, and he's worried she won't grant him a divorce. Continuing the narrative, Pa's car breaks down at a festival and Fowler gives him a lift back to Saigon and Pyle tells him he can't stand not having Fuong, so he's applied for a transfer. And then Fowler's car breaks down, runs out of gas, in enemy territory. They climb a watchtower where two Vietnamese soldiers are supposed to be on watch but are cowering in fear, thinking they're about to be shot by the Viet Minh. Fowler says, quote, do you think they know they're fighting for democracy? He goes on to say that the average Vietnamese wants food and security, not a democratic or communist government. He also complains about the damage liberal, quote, conscience can do. Fowler gets a rug from his car and tries not to make any noise. And then Pyle grabs a gun from one of the guards. They talk about love and how Pyle has no experience loving a woman. And then they hear a voice from outside the tower. The car has been found and they descend. The voice seems to be telling the guards to give up the Europeans. And then a bazooka shell bursts on the tower and the blast throws Fowler off the tower. And there we have the end of part one. bit of a cliffhanger exactly halfway through the novel so some very interesting questions to come up from the novel so far first of all did Fowler murder Pyle how will they survive the bazooka attack will Fowler finally manage to get his divorce and will he remain happy with Fuong what are my predictions on these questions Did Fowler murder Pyle? I don't think so. Will they survive the bazooka attack? I hope so. Will Fowler get a divorce? I'm not sure at this stage. I really don't know. And will he remain happy with Fuong? I don't think it's going to have a happy ending somehow. Another question, of course, is why is Pyle importing plastic? I have a very, very strong suspicion it is not for toys. So some interesting ideas to come out of this first half. The issue of translation. Have a listen to this. This is right at the beginning of the novel. He said in English, I'm sorry I had to ask you to come. This was the police inspector, I think, coming to the Sierra And Fowler says, I wasn't asked, I was ordered. Oh, these native police, they don't understand. His eyes were on a page of Le Pensée, as though he were still absorbed in those sad arguments. I wanted to ask you a few questions about Pyle. He was not ordered to come, but perhaps that was the narrator's interpretation of the junior police officer. And then we have uh, Fowler translating Pyle's marriage proposition to Fuong. Pyle says, I've mentioned this quite a lot, but there's an interesting little part where Pyle says, quote, I've got a medical certificate only two months old and I can let her know my blood group. And Fowler says, I don't know how to translate that. What's it for? So different. And then we also have a little bit of, I'd say, slight male objectification in some of this. I mean, it's a 
book written in the 50s. Fowler reminisces on Fuang. He says, quote, She was the hiss of steam, the clink of a cup. She was a certain hour of the night and the promise of rest. It's a lovely description of her. But it's the promise of his rest. Everything about Fuang is defined by him rather than her. And then we've got another description of Fuang, which again is a bit objectified, I'd say, which is quite interesting, I find. When describing Fuang for the first time, Fowler says to Pyle, when he's talking about Fuang, I'm no dancer, but I like watching her dance. One always spoke of her like that, in the third person, as though she were not there. Sometimes she seemed invisible, like peace. And then Pyle sounds like he wants to buy Fuang when he's proposing. Quote, I've got a medical certificate only two months old, and I can let her know my blood group. It's almost like a product... Obviously, war is a theme throughout that first half. I think with this bazooka attack, we're about to to get more into the whole horror of war. That's what I'm predicting. What are your thoughts on the first half? I'd love to hear them. Comments to bookshook at yahoo.com would be much appreciated. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, An Island by Karen Jennings. There are some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. Graham wrote, quote, There is a powerful effect of societal and individual history on Samuel and his relationship with his fellow island dweller. I'll say nothing more as this is the main narrative in the book. Samuels and the nation's life history is something which we learn more over time with many of the key areas revealed up front. The cycle of violence and humiliation combined with the distrust engendered by isolation mean that this is not a redemptive book, as the author has said... And the author says, quote, where Samuel represents the effects of the general political history of an entire continent, a continent which has been exploited for generations, then it becomes impossible for me to write a happy ending. My job as a writer is to hold a mirror up to these realities, but it is not within my abilities to suggest solutions, end quote, the author. Graham goes on, overall, this is a bleak and powerful fable-like exploration of the long-lasting impact of colonialism in Africa and its disturbing legacy of violence begetting violence. It is also an exploration of the effects and damage of isolation and the distrust and fear and almost entire lack of empathy it breeds. And so therefore, I think also a potential parable about the potential legacies of COVID, not the health impacts, but the potential long-lasting behavioural impacts of lockdown recommended and an impressive addition to the long list. And Doug said, quote, a fast-paced, well-written and often powerful allegory slash fable, but yet the unrelenting bleakness and my inability to really relate to any of the characters kept me at arm's length throughout the story. And while the ending was entirely appropriate, I also found it disturbingly nihilistic. Joy D said, set on an unnamed island off the coast of Africa, this book covers four days in the life of Samuel, a 70-year-old lighthouse keeper who discovers a refugee, a first thought to be dead, washed up on the shore. During the four days, Samuel remembers his past, which allows the story to cover the turbulent history of the African nation and its impact on Samuel's life. I'm impressed by the amount of history covered in such a short work. We follow the succession of leadership from colonialism to a corrupt president to a dictator. Samuel's life story is presented through memories. The refugee crisis incorporated. In addition, the psychology of paranoia is explored. That's a lot to pack into a book of less than 200 pages. 
exclamation mark. I completely agree. It is quite an incredible feat. She continues, My attention never wavered. The downside is that it is bleak. Not much joy to be found here. On the upside, Jennings succeeds in presenting an allegory for our times, depicting the desire to defend what is perceived as, quote, ours, and struggle to embrace the, quote, other. Thanks so much for allowing me to share your comments on this really extraordinarily fine book. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got around to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of The Quiet American in two weeks, that's the 25th of February, March's podcast will be all about Bewilderment by Richard Powers which is 288 pages long. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of The Quiet American in two weeks. See you then. Mm-hmm.